our voice, our future. Join us as we explore the real power of Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. The Youth Rising podcast by NCS. Hello, I'm Muslim Mahmoud and welcome back to Youth Rising by NCS. This is a podcast for young people by young people. In this podcast, you're going to hear youth-driven stories from right across England about the issues that matter to young people right now. Today's episode is an exclusive one because we're only focusing on knife crime. One of our stories is from a man you might already know, and he narrates his experience being stabbed seven times. But before I get started, I just want to remind you that this podcast is happening all thanks to NCS the summer program for 16 to 17 year olds that helps turn all those no you can't into no we can. In recent years, there has been an extraordinary increase in knife crime. Last year, knife crime rose by 7%. It's an issue that seems almost impossible to end because most attacks are for revenge. London has seen some of the biggest increases in knife crime. And if like me, you grew up in London, You already know that if someone stops you and asks, what ends are you from? Your answer is either a pass to walk on or an excuse to get stabbed. A lot of gangs have beef with other gangs. And depending on what block, estate or postcode you live in, you are liable to an attack. What hasn't helped is the way that the media and even us young people stereotype people that carry knives. Like, would you believe me if I said around 15% of knife crime suspects are female? Or, according to the British Journal of Criminology, there is no correlation between race and someone that carries a knife. What I'm saying here is that knife attacks aren't by a stereotypical black boy, but rather it can be by anyone from any ethnicity. So I actually made a short film on knife crime called To Carry. I was fortunate enough to direct the film and work on it with one of our reporters, Tapiwa. The short film was sponsored by Jerome Daly and Mayor of London, and even had press coverage from ITV News. It was at the premiere of To Carry, our short film, where I first met a man called Amani Simpson. He was with Ratman, and they were talking about Blue Story. I'm sure you already know about Blue Story, because, my God, living in East London myself, I can personally vouch for how real and authentic the film is. Because the film we created was youth-driven, Amani Simpson took it as an opportunity to inspire and motivate us. It's the kind of thing Amani does, as he's an award-winning visionary and youth activist. He's also the CEO of Aviad Inspires. Amani was stabbed seven times in an attack in 2011, in the chest, arms and legs. He lived to tell the story and actually made a film called Amani. It starts with him in an ambulance, covered in blood, questioning his faith and reflecting on a life that seems almost about to end too early. The film was released in January and has more than 2.5 million views on YouTube. We were lucky enough to hear from Amani himself, so take a listen. Uh, Hey everyone, my name is Amani Simpson. I'm a social entrepreneur, a youth activist and a filmmaker. Uh, When I was 21 years old, I was stabbed seven times intervening in someone else's robbery. And I'm going to tell you my story today. So yeah, let me start from the beginning. I grew up in a two-parent household in an area in Enfield. My mum and dad loved me to the best of their ability. They tried to give me the best start in life and, you know, all the different forms of empowerment and care and stuff that a parent can give their child. Uh, I guess, unfortunately, it didn't really prepare me for primary school. 
you know, primary school was a, a very turbulent time for me because I had, I guess, a level of confidence and self-esteem that some of my peers may not have had because of, I guess, maybe some of their insecurities. They tried to make me feel bad about who I was and that started to eat away at my character. And uh, I guess over the years, I just really slowly started to become this different version of myself, this version that was very rude, very disruptive, didn't really have much aspiration, was easily influenced and was trying to make people um, that were generally quite horrible to me, um, was trying to make them laugh and, you know, like me essentially. And, uh, and that's really how I ended up getting into a lot of the trouble in school. I ended up getting expelled from two schools when I was 14. And when I was 16, just before my GCSEs, I went to a pupil referral unit. And again, you know, obviously alongside this, there's a lot of different um, issues that are going on um, internally. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really happy because I'm having friends one day and then the next day they're kind of teasing me or beating me up or isolating me. And that can do a lot to you when you're growing up. So, you know, I guess my teenage years were very, very turbulent and it led me down some very, very dark paths. And it's one of the reasons why I do what I do today to try and steer young people away from that feeling because it's not nice. So when I was 16 and I was expelled from school, I started to hang around with a group of boys that I guess didn't really have my best intentions at heart. You know, I, I say that, at the same time, we were friends. You know, they, they were probably a little bit more genuine as friends than some of my school friends were. Um, but we, you know, the devil makes it work for idle hands. It says, you know, he kind of gives different situations and opportunities that can get you into a lot of trouble. So we ended up doing things like robberies and smoking and hanging around in like kebab and chicken and chip shops and stuff. And I ended up robbing a young kid from another school. And, you know, in that moment, I didn't really think about the consequences of my actions. I was just happy that I was included in this group. You know, after uh, I think maybe 24 hours, the, the family came to my house and threatened my mum and it just started this whole big vendetta with the, with the big brother of this boy. And uh, long and short of it, in that kind of chapter of my life, an opportunity was presented to me to borrow a, a BB gun, a toy gun from one of the boys I'd gone to school with. And that led me down Another path which ended up with me getting ex uh, well getting arrested outside of my house for having an imitation firearm at the age of 15. If I was 16, which was two weeks away, I would have gone to jail for seven years. And uh, I guess from that point, that really should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't. I ended up being a lot angrier at my parents because I always thought that they'd kind of called the police on me. I found out later on it was the neighbours, but you know it, it was just a very, very dark time. And uh, I was vulnerable. And uh, an older boy basically asked me a question, which I think is probably an automatic yes for many young people, which was, do you want to make some money? And I just said, yeah, I didn't even think about it. Didn't really kind of take into consideration what it might be that I'd be doing. And he just said, look, you know, pack your bag and come with me. And I ended up in Peterborough the next day selling class A drugs like heroin, crack cocaine. And I'd never had any kind of experience of that previously. Um, it was a new world to me, but, you know, I'm, I'm someone that I think adapts very well to different situations, rightly or wrongly. And so I became pretty good at it. Uh, I had a situation when I was in Peterborough where I nearly got arrested. I remember hearing this voice in my head and it it basically said, um, don't kind of put the, the drugs that you had in your plastic bag, put them, like kind of hide them in your trousers. And I remember just listening to this voice after kind of a bit of deliberation. And as soon as I started to ride off on my bike, police came around the corner and basically said, You've someone matching your description is selling class A drugs in this area and we're going to arrest you uh, or we're going to search you, shall I say. The first thing they did is tipped out this bag. And, you know, for me, my heart was just beating. It was just 
a very, very scary moment. It was a moment that I had intentionally put myself into and now I was seeing the consequences and I was scared. Um, I was given another chance. I was, you know, they didn't find anything on me uh, and allowed me to go. And I think as I was riding back to the place that I was staying, I just said, look, this isn't, this isn't fun. This isn't cool. I was, you know, I was isolated from my family, hadn't really spoken to them in about six months. And I just decided that this isn't really the, the kind of lifestyle I want. So I made a decision and, you know, it was a big decision. I called my dad and I said, dad, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm really sorry for the pain that I've caused you over the years. Can I, can, can I come home? And my mum and dad being um, believers and, and Christians and, you know, all about forgiveness, they kind of talked it over and decided that they would forgive and allow me to come home. On the way back down to London, my dad just gave me this, this pep talk and just said, look, son, you've got so much potential. You've got to do something positive with your life. And it's the first time I ever heard him because, you know, up to that point, I had just been rebellious and angry and, you know, really quite lost in my thoughts and in my feelings and feeling let down by people. And that was the first time I took ownership of my life and the direction I wanted to go in. So I went to a place called Connections. I'm not sure if you guys remember Connections, but I went to a place called Connections uh, and told them about the, the kind of interest that I had as a, a budding musician at the time I used to rap. And um, they basically said, yeah, you know, we've got a college you can go to. Um, in, in a local area called Walthamstow called DV8, which is now called Big Creative Academy, I believe. You know, that experience changed my life. I found a mentor called Fusion who just saw potential in me. It's the first time in my life I ever had a, a, a teacher, number one, that looked like me as a black man and, and was in a position of leadership. And uh, again, you know, also someone that didn't look at me for the mistakes that I made, but for the future that I could create. I started to do really, really well in terms of just life, you know. Yes, there were still little turbulent things with my family, but genuinely I was moving in the right direction. I started to have genuine friends. I started to go to college and engage. I started to build a reputation as someone of substance. And uh, I met a beautiful girl. In and around that time, I just decided I wanted to start a business, which was the original Aviard. So I was doing entertainment and, and under 18 parties for a number of years with some close friends of mine. And uh, one day I guess I forgot about all the progress that I'd made and I put this mask back on um, of kind of getting involved in other people's business and trying to please other people. Uh, came face to face with a group of boys that were angry. They'd probably been let down by society and, you know, the way of dealing with things in their world was to stab other people. And, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really much opportunity for me once I'd committed myself to the situation to walk away and I ended up getting stabbed seven times. So imagine it's a dark night. There's about 15 boys in front of me. I've never seen them before. Uh, I've, you know, inadvertently challenged the, this ringleader um, and he's just literally thought that I violated him and just said, what? And he just said to all of his boys, like, basically, let's stab him, let's kill him. And I remember just everything kicking in, like all of the different, I made some really stupid, but very smart decisions in that situation. Um, the first stupid decision, which as I said, was very smart, was instead of running away from them, I ran through the crowd. I don't know why, but you know, in hindsight now, if I'd run away from them, I would have ended up in a dead end and I just probably wouldn't even be here because I would have been cornered and away from, you know, the high street and attention of different people. And I ran through them. And as I ran through them, I uh, 
I was tripped up by someone that had that knew who I was. He'd come to my events over over the years and he knew me. And instead of, I guess, sticking up for me, he got caught up in peer pressure and uh, tripped me up. And as I hit the ground, anyone that's ever kind of tripped up as they're running away, you know that you lose momentum and there's no way you're going to get back up after that. So I uh, I literally kind of tripped over and ended up just fighting these boys and, and trying to protect myself. And uh, I didn't realise I was getting stabbed. I remember the first, to, to be fair, actually, I remember the, when he first said he was, they were going to stab me he, he kind of hit me with the knife and I grabbed it with my hand that's the only kind of recognition that I have of being stabbed in that situation and long and short of it I ended up kind of a lot closer to the high street because of the way that I ran and there was someone that I was speaking to uh, the bouncer of the club that I was speaking to um, before I got stabbed and he saw me and ran across the road. He didn't have to. He could have just said ah well there's a group of boys fighting but he ran over and saved my life and he came and he scared them off and administered first aid. And in that moment, I, I was just angry. I remember shouting after the boys and doing this whole macho thing of, oh, when I see you, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And for me to kind of realise the situation uh, or the gravity of the situation, he just said, look, calm down. You've been stabbed. And I just remember everything kind of slowing down for a second and me thinking, you know, I'm not going to make it. And... Um, they called my mom and my dad and, um, you know, they were shocked, as you can imagine. My mom tells me that when she came to the ambulance, she just thought that they had kind of really cut up my face in terms of um, the amount of blood that I had um, on me. And uh, the places I got stabbed were my head, my uh, my leg, my chest, my hand, my wrists, different places that were quite vital or, you know, I could have been disabled or lost a lot of blood. And, uh yeah. You know, by uh, by the time she came, I was in the ambulance and I just remember having this very, very surreal experience. I think the best way to describe it is when you're trying to watch a program at night and you're falling asleep, um, you know, you're, you're, you're catching little bits of what's going on on the TV and you're in and out of consciousness and you, you're still not asleep, but you're not awake. And that's what it was like in the ambulance. And I just remember because of the kind of background that I came from, I'd grown up in church and stuff like that. I, I just had this very surreal conversation with God. And I said, God, I don't know if you're real, but essentially I don't want to find out right now. <laughs> I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to kind of leave this earth. I think that, you know, I feel so full of potential. I feel so full of ideas and, and things that I can do on this earth that I don't want to leave yet. You know, I'll never be married if I go now, I'll never get. I'll never have a son. I'll never get to travel. I'll never get to um, to run a, a business and be successful. What was the point of me being here? And I just literally said, if you if you give me another chance, like I would dedicate my life to steering young people away from this dark road because there's nothing down here. Like this is just pain and this is long. And I remember kind of as soon as I kind of finished those last words, I just sat up in my chair with this burst of energy and literally just remember the whole journey from that point all the way to the the ambulance uh, to the to the hospital and when i got to royal london hospital in whitechapel the doctors checked me over did all the different scans and stuff and took me to the room and basically when the doctor came into the room he said mr simpson everywhere you've been stabbed you should be dead or disabled he said it's a miracle i have absolutely no idea how you survived what you have and if you want to go home tomorrow you can go home tomorrow so after i heard that news it was me and my dad in the room and I remember just breaking down with him. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of family and friends that came around. And I was in a dilemma, to be honest with you. I wasn't in that world, but the the anger and the, the, the kind of, I guess, the violation that I felt 
after being stabbed kind of caused my brain to go towards retaliation and, you know, let's go and do this to the boys and stuff like that. And I remember being in conversations with certain family members that were were actually quite out of character for us. Well, they're very out of character. My family's not violent in any way. None of my family have been to jail or involved in that lifestyle heavily. And so we're sitting around the table, almost like the mafia, talking about what we're going to do to these boys if we find them. And I just remember making a decision and saying, look, guys, we're not going to do anything. I don't even want to do that. I just want to, I just want to heal. I feel blessed to be given another opportunity where many people haven't. And they, you know, they, they listened to me and, and, and respected my wishes. And I, I didn't even press charges on the boys. I didn't even try and find them. I just took it as I'd made a decision that day to get involved in their world. And, I, you know, I just took it as, as something that I had to learn from. I guess I just had to really kind of rebuild in that dark space. I guess the best way to see it is almost like being on your face or on your knees and slowly learning how to stand up and kind of see the world in a different perspective. And, you know, I I like to use the word overstand instead of understand. I like to overstand the situation and, and kind of see it for the life lesson that it was meant to be. I managed to rebuild my relationship with my family. I got married I got stabbed in 2011, so by about 2017, after been after being in the property industry for a long time, I remember seeing a young boy who used to say hello to me every day outside of my shop, and I I, I just decided I was going to go and say hello to him um, on this day because he hadn't said hello to me, and he said, "Oh, I've just been excluded from school," and I just saw myself, and it then showed me uh, another chapter that I needed, to, another chapter of my life, which was about you know, helping young people that didn't really know their greatness and were making silly choices from young. Yeah, I just offered him a job. I said, look, do you want to learn how to do property? I bought him a suit and a laptop. And uh, I, I guess I just, you know, saved his, his, his trajectory. You know, I didn't allow him to get fully engulfed in this self-pity or this street lifestyle or anything like that. I kind of gave him an option. After doing that and seeing how far he came, I just, I just said to myself, do you know what? This is, this is what I want to do forever. I wanted to enrich those that didn't really know that they could be rich. Um, mentally or spiritually or or uh, or even like with their characteristics and aspirations. I just wanted to help youngers, uh, young, I call them youngers, but yeah, young people. You know, I feel very fulfilled with what I do now and I feel very grateful and very blessed to have been able to share my story in a way that impacted so many people. I just spend every single day, I do it full time now, I go into schools and I work with corporates and I go to events and I share my story and I just try and bring hope and you know, let people know that it's not how you start your race, it's how you finish it. A lot of the time we have turbulent upbringings, things happen to us that are outside of our control that then that kind of, I guess, force us or influence us to make bad choices. But long and short of it, once you take ownership of the direction that you want to go in, um, and as I always say, if your mind can go there, your body can follow. Once you take ownership of that and you start to say that this isn't the future that I want to have and these aren't the kind of, outcomes that I would like my children to see that's in your your hands so when I started to look at it like that I just started to make good choices and I just lived to empower people to to do the same thing thank you so much to Armani Simpson for his contribution not all of us have the traumatic experience of being stabbed so hearing from someone that has that kind of story but also someone that has changed their life is so powerfully inspiring On the topic of hope and changing things around, only recently Glasgow had the most knife crime in all of Europe. It had the worst reputations, but today Glasgow is a completely different place. Knife attacks have decreased by 60%. It was through a radical shift that such a dramatic turnaround was made possible. It proves to me that this issue can be resolved. (laughs) 
the Youth Rising podcast by NCS. The Youth Rising podcast by NCS. You're listening to Youth Rising by NCS. So this episode of Youth Rising is all about knife crime. We've just heard from Amani and what a story he had for us. You can watch his film on the link in his Instagram at amani.simpson. Now, our reporter Tapiwa, who is a member of Youth Parliament locally and nationally, spoke to Shanae, founder of Your Life, More Life and youth coordinator for Temi Wells Formation Campaign. Have a listen to their incredible interview. Hello, I'm Tapiwa. I'm a reporter for the Youth Rising podcast by NCS. I'm a member of Youth Parliament locally and nationally. And today I'm going to be talking to Shanae about knife crime, the preconceptions, the root causes, and most importantly, the solutions. Today I'm here with Shanae, who I think would be able to introduce herself. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Shanae. I'm a youth mentor, a youth leader. Some may call me a youth activist. Um, Yeah, and I'm founder of the Your Life, More Life project. And I'm also the Formation Youth Activist Lead. Your campaign is trying to tackle a very prevalent issue in our society, one which I think a lot of young people would agree to be one of the biggest challenges facing youth today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the British Youth Council recently in their Make Your Mark survey of 2019 and 2018 showed that young people view knife crime as one of their top priorities and that it desperately needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. In 2019, the Office for National Statistics saw a 7% increase in knife crime. All of this seems to be quite recent. So I think my first question to you would be, what do you think has motivated this increase? One thing that I used to think when I first came into this work was that, oh, like, this is a new thing and the moral panic is, ah, it's all happening now, 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 why now? But the reality is when I was looking back and I started to learn and attend conferences and meetings and actually understanding the issue, this issue is not new. And we've had gangs in this country for many, 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 many years. And from my own understanding, they've all had the same socioeconomic roots. Um, and obviously, obviously today with the added pressures of social media, means we could talk about loads of things that I've added to it. But yeah, I think it's not gangs. I don't even want to say gangs. Violence isn't new. Um, we live in a violent society, whether it's in this country or across the world, there's violence mm. everywhere. <laughs> we want to look at the rise in youth violence on our streets um locally i just definitely think the lack of support for these individuals that are spoken about most is i'd say driving the increase so do you think that the media then has a significant role to play in how it's presented you know as being something which has dramatically increased an issue which has come out of nowhere i, I guess so because i don't think that we should downplay the issue 100 percent. i'm not saying that i think the media should report on these issues but in a meaningful way not in sensationalizing the deaths of young people but actually telling their story and putting out solutions because I don't know from the media outlets that I've seen and I've the paper articles that I've read I just don't think it serves any purpose to our communities. On that note I think we should read through some headlines (laughs) of these papers which discuss knife crime and youth violence. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) number one. Okay, and this is from The Sun. 
It's easy to blame police cuts for knife crime, but the real culprits are absent fathers and bad parenting. Mad ting. Well, one, I'm going to start off by saying I do not blame police cuts. I don't think this is an issue that we can police our way out of. I don't think it's the police's responsibility. In saying that the real culprits are absent fathers and bad parenting, I, as a young person that comes from a single-parent household, raised by an amazing woman, mm-hmm. can testify to that she raised me and my brother wonderfully and clearly absent fathers and bad parenting aren't a problem. And whilst it can be argued that that is an issue, I just think that's a really surface um what is that even saying surface level like approach yeah like a surface approach and saying that it's just the parents fault when yeah i just think we right now the country is advocating for a multi-agency approach Mm. we can talk about contextual safeguard and we can talk about the wraparound approach that our young people need from all different institutions all different members of society Mm. it's really silly i think to push blame on fathers and parenting like that makes no sense Mm. our young Mm -hmm. people are influenced and affected by so many other areas okay on to the next and this is from the bbc does drill music cause crime or offer an escape from it um yeah it's quite heavy uh, yeah it is do you know it's because i have quite radicalized views about drill music (laughs) (laughs) i think across the last few months years i've heard so many talks about drill music and it just really upsets me it really upsets me that young people from our communities that sing and rap about their violent realities like, that's not enough to cause a national outcry that for support. Like, mm. that's not... It's like, that wasn't enough. It's like, there's a whole genre that's fueled by young people living out violent realities. And that shouldn't be the case. And I just feel like this country or this society or the media, whoever else is talking about drill music has kind of taken it. And instead of asking... Why is that young person rapping about Mm. their violent realities? How can we stop that violent reality being their reality? How can we support them within that violent reality and take them away from it? It's like, that hasn't been a narrative. It's been more block drill music, no more drill music. And it's like, young people from our communities don't have that many opportunities. And looking at people from our community, like Jay Huss, Kojo Farms, they're all people that have... I I always reiterate, they're not drill artists, but they do make music with violent lyrics sometimes. And they've also been blocked themselves. Mm. We can look at CB, we can look at so many other um, artists from Newham, that's where I'm from, Mm. that have made it. They have made so much money. They don't have to be on road anymore. They don't have to sell drugs. They don't have to be a part of this illegal economy because they've had the opportunity of being able to voice their truth through music. But yet, there's so many people that are turning mm. around and saying, no, they shouldn't be able to make music. They shouldn't. And it's like the lack of legitimate pathways for success are not even are not existent. So it's like, how can we then turn around and continue to block our young people? It just mm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Seems as though drill music, from what you're saying, is more of a symptom of youth violence and knife crime rather than a cause of it. I definitely don't see drill as a negative thing. There are so many other violent genres of music and Mm. no one wants to talk about Mm. that. And it's like, we have to start questioning why. Why is drill being demonised? Why is drill being um, penalised when there's so many other violent lyrics? And I listen to drill. What? I I ain't killing no one. I ain't doing that. So it's like, and that's the same for many other communities that listen to drill music and yeah, I just don't really, I don't see drill as anything negative. I see it as a craft for help. If mm. anything, mm. and I see it as a work of art. I think if a young person is with 
all in the face of hardship, in the face of adversity, in the face of violence and trauma, that young person can articulate their violent reality so beautifully. It's like, <laughs> what, like I, honestly, I do. I see it as a work of art. And for every, for every young person that's in that studio, that young person is working on their craft and they're not on road mm. being being fit, like fearful for their lives or killing someone. So I think for every time, every hour that young person is in the studio session, I clap for them and I support them with whatever they want to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I definitely hear that, but I just think, like, from my personal experience, I've seen some folks, you know, on a beat, name-dropping people who they've actually fully been violent towards. Mm-hmm. So do you think that it then, I don't know, glorifies their acts and almost evades accountability it can yeah it can and honestly I'm not disputing that like I I 100% I'm not disputing that um but what I am trying to say is the focus of that should not be on what that young person is saying Mm. the focus should be on supporting that young person not blocking what they're saying and trying to prevent them for doing from making that money or taking that opportunity Mm. in both hands is okay if that young person is talking about killing this person that person that person how can we support that young person? Mm. That young person is still experiencing that reality. That young person will still go about their daily life talking like that, whether it's on a track or not. Mm. We need to support that young person through whatever they're going through, through whatever they've done. And yeah, I think that's the approach that we should take as a whole country. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next one, which is stop and search will decrease the amount of violence. Now, this isn't like a direct quote because I don't think I've seen any articles which say this explicitly, Mm -hmm. but does seem to be the notion at play. So what are are our thoughts? One, for those that are listening, go educate yourself on sus laws. Stop and search is just a, I don't even know, like an alternative, should we say, and a more structured way of implementing sus laws number two um through looking at statistics from my own area majority of stop and searches result in no further action number three a lot of stop and search result in the retrieval of drugs cannabis to me biased again i know people in the news say different minor drug use to me i don't think should be a reason to criminalize young people to me that's criminalizing poverty Anyway, that doesn't have any relation to solving the issue of violence. And to end with, I think even if it did, even if stop and search did just take all these knives off the streets, it's like you're now going to arrest that young person, put that young person into a system where they don't receive any real meaningful support and they will come out of prison and continue to hold that knife, continue to have the behaviours or ways or whatever it is that they're dealing with on their shoulders. They will continue with that, with no support. So it's like, what? what's the purpose? It's mm. like, we're not supporting that young person. We're criminalising them, essentially. When it's like, that serves our communities, it serves the country, it serves no one, any purpose. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but what is the origin story of your life, more life? Whoa, OK, let's take it back. Again, I'll try <laughs> to keep it short and sweet. Um, so when I was 16, I lost one of my friends. Um, and yeah, it hit me. It hit me, it hit my sister, it hit so many people around me. And I knew I, di- I wasn't going to be passive. I knew I wasn't going to lose my friend and let his death be in vain. I wanted to say, no, I'm going to build a legacy for you. Like, I want to do something. I didn't know what it looked like at the time. Mm. So then I spent the last year or two just learning, researching, organising, just kind of getting to know 
why I just wanted to know why why does it why does violence affect my community why does it affect communities like mine across the country across the world like I just mm. wanted to know why I wanted to be someone to look to not for answers but as someone that was actively making a change to the young people in my community I co-developed my own um mentoring program for the young boys in my um in the lower school mm. of my sixth form so I was mentoring on top of my studies I'd organized um first aid training for my sixth form that was after another incident where I'd actually seen a young boy in my neighborhood get stabbed outside my house mm. um and I yeah organized first aid training I co-chaired the new youth and then last year I felt ready and I was like yeah it's time to bring local people together I saw that there was Newham was missing a lot in mm. terms of the youth provisions and specifically targeting the young people that are most impacted um, and affected by violence. I wanted to support them and I saw that that was missing. Wow. <laughs> but I mean, for something which is driven so much by your personal experience, some of which is very negative, how do you maintain the vision? How do you maintain the motivation? It's difficult. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. It is difficult. It's heavy. Like, I only just turned 19. That was my birthday a couple of days <laughs> Happy ago. Happy belated birthday. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it, I'm not going to lie, a 16-year-old and pursuing a vision that I just didn't know what it was even going to be at the beginning. It mm. was heavy and dealing with the loss as well. It was, it was, mm. I'm not going to lie to you and say it wasn't heavy. It was extremely heavy, but I was able to take that pain and transform it into my purpose because this is something that I've dedicated my whole life to what keeps me motivated and what keeps me going is my young people like I care so much about my community like mm. I like honestly like, I love my we hood can see like, it. <laughs> <laughs> like I love my hood um, oh, I love where I'm from and yeah I just think it's on us it's our responsibility to solve our own issues and support ourselves and on top of that like even this morning hearing that another 16 year old boy was killed in Beckton um, which is again my my borough, it's that in itself is enough to make me say, you know, watch now, you can't give up. Like mm. you've got to keep going. Doesn't matter if you fell, doesn't matter if you fall, you keep going because these young people need you. So As we touched on earlier, this isn't just a London specific issue. So mm -hmm. do you think there's potential collaboration with organizations outside of London? Oh hundred percent. Hundred and hundred and ten percent. I think under the formation campaign we're building a base in manchester so Jeez. yeah <laughs> so we will be collaborating with youth groups and youth organizations in manchester and we hope to go across the uk with that i think that concludes our discussion but i think one of the major takeaways from from it is that the solutions need to be led by youth they need to be led by people with lived experience who know the issues who know their communities such as yourself, evidently. <laughs> and I think that that's how we're going to sort out this issue. That's how we're going to tackle it 100%. I think I'm solid on whatever you're doing. <laughs> whatever you're Thank doing. You. And if you want Thank to support you. her too, let's get the socials. So what are you on? So I'm on Instagram, Shanae Kerry. Um, the project is Your Life More Life. Uh, Twitter, Shanae Kerry as well. Shanae K. Oldham is my youth work account. Uh, Project YLML is the Your Life More Life account. Um, yeah, we are also launching our YouTube um, platform soon. So stay tuned for that Ooh, one. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's been great having you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you for teaching me. It's been great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 
Thank you so much to our reporter Tapiwa and Shanae. So let's go behind the scenes. In today's segment of Story Behind the Story, we're going to hear from Tapiwa and her experience with the interview. Hi, it's Tapiwa. I just finished recording with Shanae and it actually went down a lot easier than I would have thought. She's very easy to talk to and I think we got the content that we needed, I think, that we explored the topics that we set out to. So overall, I'm very happy with the interview. Marcel did the editing. Have a listen to what he had to say. Editing the knife crime episode was very fun, um, but also very challenging. There have been many different things and bits and bobs. So I had to either edit or cut out or add to make sure that the whole thing flows properly. Uh, one big uh, difficulty also was the length of the whole podcast. It was about 37 minutes long, but I had to cut it down to about 20 minutes, which made a lot of uh, banter or a lot of um, you know less valid points have to be deleted um, and substituted for the most important and or interesting bits in the whole podcast. But it's a gr- uh, it's a lot of fun listening to the whole thing, um, even the raw unedited version with all the laughing in between and all the breaks and stuff. It just makes it feel a lot more natural and realistic. Thank you so much for joining us on our sixth episode of Youth Rising by NCS. Each episode will bring you stories that matter to young people. And next week, we're going to be discussing the effect that the coronavirus is having on Chinese and Asian communities. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. by NCS.